0: After weeks of promising, I will finally finish the chapter and we'll go to the next chapter. Um, but what I wanted to start with was a few statistics. And these statistics were shared with me by me listening to another pastor online as he was teaching Matthew. But what I wanted to point out is about the Gospels. What he said was one-third of the events that, record, that are recorded in the Gospel accounts occur in the last week of Jesus' life on earth. In these four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only four chapters of the 89 total in the four gospel accounts give information about the first 30 years of Jesus' life. So that's all we have about the first 30 years. I think about that for my own life. I'm 30 now, giving away my age. But four chapters, that's it, of 89, were spent on the first 30 years of his life. And then, 85 chapters focus on the last three and a half years of Jesus' life. In other words, his public ministry. And then, of those 85 chapters, which is the majority, 29 of those chapters deal with the final week of Jesus' life on earth. Kind of interesting. And of those 29 remaining chapters, 13 of those deal with just the last day of Jesus' life and ministry. And then, in those chapters, there are 579 verses about the final day of his life on earth. Now, I I share that with you because I heard another pastor share it, and I thought it was interesting. I didn't have the same information to share about it because those were the facts, right? Those are the statistics. Okay, we're past the statistics. What does that mean? Well, as I was thinking about it, we oftentimes tend to think about our lives as, as what is important about what's going on in my life right now. And it's interesting to me because these disciples had spent three years of their life with Jesus. And no doubt they spent tons of time reflecting and writing down what he had done in his life. But it seems more emphasized that he was actually they actually focused more, not necessarily on his life, although they did on the miracles. He healed people, he walked on water, changed water into wine. But it seems like because of the amount of ground they use... They, they focus in on his death. But what I want to point out is that when we focus in on Jesus' death, it's not for the sake of being uh, uh, morbid. We're focusing in on not just his death, the fact that he did die, which paid for our sin so that we could have his righteousness. He says, hey, I got a deal for you. I'm going to give you grace, unmerited love. You didn't earn it. I'm going to give you my righteousness in return for your sin and we're like oh wow that's a really good deal for us but why would he do that but apart from that we're looking at his death for that reason without it we have no nothing to have faith in he made us right with God but the emphasis is not so much on just the fact that he died everyone that's a Christian shares the fact with people all the time hey Jesus died for you well if that's all you share with people it's not really that significant because everyone dies what do you mean he died for me? Okay, so, but the reality is that he didn't just die, but it's, it's the manner of how he died. And so the writers of the Gospels look at Jesus' death and they, they show us more than just that he died, but they show us how he died. They show us that he laid his life down willingly. They show us that not only did he lay it down willingly, but he didn't try to pick it back up like we do as Christians many times. He laid it down And then when he was wrongfully accused, he knew it was God's will that he would die in our place. And so he didn't try to like back away from it. He was steadfast in the calling that God had for him. So, and this is a principle that we're taught to live by and follow from Jesus in John chapter 12, verse 25. It says, he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And so the principle there says, Whoever seeks to keep his life will gain it in this life, but will lose it eternally. In other words, whoever holds this life dear to them. But he who would consider his or her life as a common or an ordinary thing in comparison to to the life that is to come will be willing to lay it down for a time in order that we could pick up our lives for eternity, the one that actually matters. And so we have hope beyond the grave. And so that's the reality, and so as we see Jesus, um, even Paul the Apostle saw this principle in Jesus' life, and he he wrote it down in Romans chapter 8, verse 16 through 8, he said, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So we're His children. He's begotten us again to a new hope. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, we, we get his same reward. It doesn't make any sense to me. We, we inherit the same thing that he does from God, his Father. But there's a condition there. It says, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So this life is hard, right? We have things that we go through and we're like, why in the world does this happen? Well, Jesus said that in this world you will have suffering. You will have persecution. It's not necessarily going to be evil, or excuse me, easy. Sometimes it will be evil and things will come in on you. But what Paul came to the conclusion of in Romans 8.18, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In other words, though the suffering may last for a little while, the glory that God's going to reveal in us is going to be not even comparable. It shouldn't even be mentioned in the same sentence with the suffering that we experience here. In other words... It's really not that big of a deal in the eternal perspective. Now, does that necessarily make it easy here and now? No. So as we continue looking at the last days of Jesus' life, let us remember that we're watching to see how he died. Not just that he died, but how he died. But this week we continue as Peter, if you'll remember from last week, he had followed Jesus to the camp. Remember, he had uh, told Jesus, Jesus told him, he said, hey, You guys are all going to be caused to stumble tonight because of me. Basically, he was telling them ahead of time, I'm going to be arrested and you guys are all going to scatter. I'm going to be struck and you guys are all going to freak out. You're going to panic and you're going to leave. And Peter stood up kind of boasting and proud and said, no, I will never, I will never forsake you. Even if it means that I have to die with you, I won't deny you. And Jesus said, no, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster rooster crows twice. And so Peter kind of stops there, and he still thinks that he's going to do just fine. And he, in order to kind of prove himself, it seems, when Jesus is taken and arrested, he's taken to the camp of the enemy, uh, to the high priest in the Sanhedrin, which was just this big court, uh, basically a a panel of people that was uh, the high priest, um, the chief priest, which were just kind of like the old high priest that had retired, and then the scribes and the um, elders of the community. So this was supposed to be the holiest of the whole community that was there uh, putting Jesus to trial. So Peter followed them and ended up in the camp of the enemy. He was warming himself at the fire with those who were putting Jesus to trial. They wanted him dead. It wasn't like they just wanted to silence him anymore. They were looking for a way to, be, to take Jesus and get rid of him permanently. And so they, were, they had this vendetta against him. But we find Peter this week, he's alone with his enemies. He's not anymore with his the disciples that he was following Jesus with. He's separated from them and now he's surrounded by people that are no longer like-minded. And let me tell you, if the enemy wants to close you off and get you to doubt the Lord and tempt you to sin, what he'll do, the first thing he'll do is he'll try to keep you away from fellowship with other Christians. So if this happens in your life, beware. Trial and temptation around the corner, and Satan desires to sift you, just like he did Peter. He desires to try and keep you away from the love of God and to be completely off the map spiritually. He wants you to perish. He doesn't want you to live an abundant life with Jesus. So Peter is in this situation, and we'll start this week in verse 66 of chapter 14. It says, Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and she said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. And then the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. This is one of them that was with Jesus, is what he's saying. But he denied it again, verse 70. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you're one of them for you're a Galilean and your speech shows it. In other words, Peter's from Galilee. They're down in Jerusalem to the south. And so they're like, hey, we can tell you have a northern accent. You're one of the Galileans that was walking with Jesus. You're not from here. We can tell. You know, maybe, you know, I don't know, in my family seems like, all my family on my mom and dad's side are from the north and so when we have visitors come down and and stay with us they're always like we'll go out to eat or something they're like hey can i get a pop and i'm always like what are you talking about they're like a soda you know they, they call it something else well not only that but down here we go up north and they're like man what are you from like you know alabama or something you know or mississippi you know to them, we sound like we're from the deep South. But, you know, then you talk to somebody from the deep South, we don't sound anything like them. So anyway, just the point is that they had an accent and so they could tell and they were like, surely you're one of the ones that was with Jesus. But verse 71, notice his response. He began to curse and swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak In other words, he's not just saying, hey, I don't know what you're talking about anymore. He's saying, I absolutely do not know. I'm denying the fact that I ever walked with him. So verse 72, a second time the rooster crowed, and then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. He was sorrowful. The sorrowful and the sad thing about it is that Jesus warned him. You know, oftentimes parents warn their kids, hey, if you do this, then this. It's going to happen. Watch out. Here it comes. And uh, and we as kids, I speak personally, always go, you don't know. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what this thing is. You've never seen this before. And Jesus foretold, he said, look, you're going to deny me. But what I want you to notice is that Jesus didn't say, you're going to deny me and I'm going to deny you. I'm putting you off the map like I'm done with you. You let me down one time. What Jesus said is, I'm warning you. Just just know, you're going to do it. So when it does happen, Peter's sorrowful, but I often wonder if he was maybe comforted. Jesus picked me to walk with him for three years knowing that I would totally let him down. And yet he still picked me, he still loved me, he still considered me. You know, so for me, I, I I guess I look at that and I'm just like, Lord, thank you so much for being willing to put up with my garbage. For being willing to die in my place knowing that later I was going to deny you completely. Because I've, I've been in Peter's spot before. I've gone through this. I've been around other people that caused me to start to doubt my faith. And then I act like I never knew Jesus. Yeah, those crazy Jesus freaks, you know. But the reality is, is that God's the only one that always stays there. He doesn't care. He loves us. And I think it's interesting too because I, I think about Peter before this happened. Right after Jesus said, you're going to deny me. Peter's all up in arms and he's all zealous. And, the, and Judas comes and he brings the, the guards and the chief priests to arrest him. They bring clubs and they bring torches as if he's some guy that's going to try to you know, knock him down with a broadsword. And they arrest him. And Peter steps up to defend Jesus with his little sword. He pulls it out and he like hacks away at one of the, 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 the chief priest's guards. And when he does it, he misses completely because he's not a swordsman, he's a fisherman. He hacks away at this guy and he just gets his ear, he cuts his ear off. And Jesus has to fix that little mishap. He picks it up, you know, and he heals him. He restores his ear. But what's funny to me is this guy that was ready to fight all these guards, he backs away at this young woman, this servant's, you know, this, this, this woman's servant. He looks at her and he's like, no, no, I wasn't with Jesus. As if she's going to like take him out. But remember, he's completely surrounded by his enemies. He's surrounded by unbelievers. And so they're sitting there putting up, up to trial. Not only is Peter afraid that he's going to be put to trial with Jesus and maybe crucified or, or killed in some way, condemned to death, but he's also surrounded by people that are of a different mind. And so he's, he's, he, he's not, no longer surrounded by a bunch of people that are of the moral majority. He's surrounded by a bunch of people that could care less. And so he kind of goes with uh, the easy road. So verse 13, oh, excuse me, I, what I wanted to refer to was in First Peter. I, I, I was reading this passage in First Peter chapter three, verse 13 through 17, and I often wonder if this passage was written as Peter thought back on how he had denied Jesus and how Jesus had restored him, because uh, in First Peter chapter three, it says, "And who is he will har- who will harm you?" If you become follower, followers of what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify or set apart the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as an evildoer, those who revile your good conduct in Christ, may be ashamed, where it's better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I read that passage because I wonder if perhaps Peter at one point goes, I can't, you know, after going through that time when he denied Christ, if he went, this is the worst feeling in the world. Have you guys ever done something or lied about something and gotten caught and it was like the worst feeling in the world because you knew when you did it, you shouldn't have done it. And I believe that Peter, when he denied Christ, he knew, like, this isn't going to go well for me, but it's, it's convenient right now. And then when he gets found out and realizes that he's completely gone off the map, he's like, you know, it would have been just easier if I'd have gotten in trouble for doing the right thing than for doing the wrong thing. Because oftentimes it's more convenient to do the wrong thing, but the long-term consequences, it's, it's even harder to deal with. And so Peter says, it's better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing the right thing than to suffer for doing the wrong thing. Because at least then, God's on your side, you know. So no doubt Peter was thinking about that. But anyway, Mark chapter 16, verse 1 says, Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and they led him away and they delivered him to Pilate. Now, remember that they were not able to find anything wrong or to condemn Jesus to death. The one thing that they had a problem with Jesus with is that he claimed to be the Messiah, number one, the one that was foretold in the prophecy, but he also claimed to be the Son of God. Now, to us, okay, so you think you're God. We all think, okay, well, that's nuts. You're just a person. But in the Roman culture... They didn't care if you thought you were a god. They had a pantheon of foreign gods. They worshipped many gods. And so to bring him up for charges before a Roman governor and say, hey, this guy thinks he's God, they'd be like, well, maybe he is. But in the Jewish mind, they're sitting there going, no, he claims to be God, and so we got to have him put to death. He's a blasphemer. But they didn't have the right to mete out capital punishment. And so basically... They were at the authority of Rome. The only way they could have capital punishment, put someone to death, was to send him to the Romans. And so what they do is they deliver him to Pilate, who is the governor in this Roman area. And and they say, hey, look, this guy is claiming to be a king. So you could think about that. And we're like, "Okay, so what? He claims to be a king. But in their culture, if you claim to be a king, that's treason. That's high treason against the government. You're claiming authority over the one who is actually in authority. So this would actually, in Rome, be worthy of punishment of death. So this is the way that they could lie to the Romans to make sure that Jesus was put to death for their own reasons. It's kind of a mixed-up jumble, but it always is when we lie and and try to deceive. And so they find a way to to get him uh, put up to trump charges. But the other thing is that... um, At this time in Israel, they didn't have the right to do capital punishment, and so when the Jews see that happen and they lose their right to govern themselves, they would see a problem with this because God had promised in Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 that the scepter or the right to rule would not pass from the tribe of Judah before Shiloh would come. That was Messiah. And so because of that promise, they go, oh no, we lost the right to rule and reign over our own territory. So uh, I guess God didn't fulfill his promise. He's let us down. But what they didn't know is during that time, already had been born, was a boy by the name of Jesus in the town of Bethlehem. And so Shiloh had come. He just hadn't come onto the scene yet. So that explains why when Jesus comes on the scene, starts doing miracles and doing works that are worthy of the Messiah, they start to question, is this him? Is this the son of David that was supposed to come? And so that was just kind of a side note, but I thought it was important. So anyway, verse two says, then Pilate asked him, because he's now in court and Pilate is playing judge. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered and he said to him, it is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. He didn't defend himself. And then Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things that they're testifying against you. But Jesus still answered nothing. So Pilate marveled. Now, this is interesting because anytime you're in a court of law, there are people accusing another person of doing something wrong. They broke the law. And so these guys are coming up and they're They're filing these charges against Jesus. This man claims to be the king of the Jews. And so Pilate says, do you claim to be the king of the Jews? In other words, what's your defense? Are you pleading guilty or not guilty? Now, oftentimes, whether we're guilty or not, in our society, we always plead not guilty because we might be able to get away with it. You know, I I one time got a a ticket for careless and imprudent driving. What had happened is I was driving down 44. They were redoing one of the lanes. And so the, the... the big, uh, the highway was down to one lane and they would have you go over for one lane and then all of a sudden it would open back up. Now, this during this time on 44, you would lose hours of your life just sitting there waiting on the traffic. Anyway, I was coming home from Rolla on the weekend because I was going to school there for engineering at the time. And as I was coming home, basically I was driving down the one lane and all of a sudden up ahead I just saw brake lights. I thought, man, I need to get over. It must be, must be the bottleneck because I hadn't been out back home for like a month. So I got over, and all of a sudden, brake light, brake light, brake light, brake light. I'm like, oh, this is not going to go well. So believe it or not, with my cat-like reflexes, I looked over to my right because I was thinking I can get back in the lane. I just got out, so I can get back in the lane. Well, go figure. There was somebody in my blind spot, but I was taught from a young age, check your blind spot. So I looked over, there was somebody there. So what I did was go, okay, well, I guess I'm going to hit this truck. Jammed on the binders, all I could, no anti-lock brakes. I just had a little Ford Focus. And, and it rammed into the back. I got down to like probably 25 before I hit this, the back of this Ford Ranger. Well, I got a ticket for careless and imprudent driving. Now, was I driving carelessly and imprudent? Well, according to them, I was. They thought I was speeding in the construction zone. Now, I wasn't, but I didn't have anti-lock brakes. I just couldn't stop in time. You know, it happens. But they deemed that careless and imprudent. So I can either go to court and say, hey, that was totally jacked up. That highway patrol guy, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But he was there, and he does know what he's talking about. He's just doing his job. So I go in, I dress nice, and I go, and they go, well, what do you want to plead? Well, all day long, I sat in court waiting for my time. And they were all pleading, not guilty, or I didn't know I had court date. Can I get a defense for myself? I walked in knowing what was going on. I said, look, if that's careless and imprudent driving, then I was doing it. You know what happened? They acquitted me. They had finally heard somebody during that day that didn't try to defend themselves. They didn't know what to do with it. They're like, this guy's obviously not guilty. Let's get him off of here. You know, like nobody's ever said, I'm I'm guilty, you know. Or did I say I wasn't guilty? I don't remember. Anyway, so Jesus comes in. He doesn't defend himself at all. And Pilate looks at this. He's like, you're not even going to defend yourself? Like, I can tell you're not guilty. Just defend yourself. And Jesus says nothing. He just responds. He says, yeah, it is as you say. I am the king of the Jews. So at that point, I want you to remember last week, Mark chapter 14, verse 60. This is the same question that was asked of Jesus by the high priest. He says, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? He's like, I don't have to answer anything. He doesn't respond. And it reminded me uh, just, just how often Jesus actually had the opt-out option. At any point, he could have backed out, and yet he continued. He, he wasn't going to let that stop him. But <clears throat> since Jesus doesn't respond, uh, Pilate, who is a governor in the Roman Empire, completely marvels. He's befuddled. He's stupefied. So, anyway, what I want to point out is that Jesus is a king. Um, But he's not a king of this world. John chapter 18, verse 36, um, says that. It says, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my people would fight for me. Just like Caesar's people would have fought for him if his uh, honor was being messed up. If somebody was coming to bring charges against him, they'd just knock him out. They would completely uh, overrule them. But Jesus wasn't anything like a king that Pilate had ever seen. So, anyway... Verse 6, now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. So during the feast of Passover, Pilate had a custom with the Jews in order to kind of gain favor with them. Every time during the feast, he would release to them one prisoner that they would choose. And so Pilate says, you know what? This Jesus is not guilty, and he can see the reasons that he was brought up for charges. And he's going to say that here shortly, that he saw that the uh, high priest had only brought him up for charges because they envied him. They didn't like the fact that he had a bigger following than they did. They thought, you know, we've got to get rid of this guy because we're no longer popular. And so since Pilate saw that, he was like trying to get away for Jesus to get out of the charges and, and what he does is he says, okay, every year I let somebody go, and I'm going to give you a choice this year. Instead of just saying, hey, whoever you want, I'm going to give you a choice between this guy that you just brought to me and this guy named Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a well-known murderer, so he thought, no problem, I'll get Jesus released. I'll just say, hey, here's your choices, this murderer who could come in and get your families or this guy who you envy. Like, it's an obvious choice, right? They'll make the right decision. So what he does is he gives them the opportunity. And so then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him, go ahead and do that. Do just as he you have always done for us. And then verse 9, but Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? It's kind of like he's trying to lead them. Like, okay, so the obvious choice is, right? And they answer, for he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But they answer, because of the chief priests. verse 11, the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, what then do you want me to do with him who you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again because they've been stirred up. It's kind of a mob mentality. Crucify him. And then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify. They were already well past the reasoning phase. They were already like, Hey, get rid of him. You know, if, if somebody would have stirred him up to do otherwise, they would have followed the same thing. They were just all in. They were in a froth. And so um, they're in a chaotic situation. And they're in a politically explosive situation because he had the choice, Pilate did, between doing what was right To free an innocent man, and what was politically convenient, to execute a man brought before him by the Jews for treason. See, if word gets to Rome that someone was put on trial for treason and he didn't do anything about it or get rid of the guy, Caesar's basically gonna go, Oh, yeah, well, you're going to prison and we're gonna put you to death for treason for not dealing out judgment. And so Pilate's in this spot where he has to deal with that. But he also has to deal with a potentially chaotic situation because the Jews are known for stirring up these big um, riots, if you will. And so if he doesn't keep peace, meaning if Pilate doesn't keep peace, he's got to do something because otherwise he'll lose his job, basically. And so in order to keep his position, he has to make a decision. So he sets up what he sees as an easy fix. I'll offer up one of these two guys. But what I want to point out is that Barabbas... You break up his name. Remember, we talked about Peter. He was called Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon Bar, Bar meaning son of, Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. And then Barabbas, his name is Bar, son of, Abbas, a father, son of a father. So he's just some guy. You've got to pick between some guy and Jesus, the son of the father, our heavenly father. And so that's the decision we always come to in this life am I going to follow some man or am I going to follow the man? Oftentimes we pick some man because we think that it's expedient. It'll get us farther along in life. But the reality is is that when we follow the man, not only will it get us along in this life, it'll get us through this life to eternity where we can live with joy with him forever, but he'll bring us through this life victoriously. Anyway... Another thing is, whenever you decide, you can only serve one. you only get a choice between one or the other. So, Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, that's often the case, right? Politicians want to gratify the people they run or they rule. Isn't it funny that most leaders are actually being led by those who they're supposed to be leading? They're not examples. They're just kind of the minority they got voted in. And so, Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. So just a few notes on that, and we'll end. There's a great amount of details going on in this passage tonight, but for me, one of the things that I took away, I, I want to share with you. Number one, Jesus was innocent, but Barabbas was guilty. That was obvious, right? I mean, I just pulled that out, like that was deep, right? Right? But then, number two, Barabbas was freed, but Jesus was condemned. Number three, Jesus was condemned instead of Barabbas. Now, I want to be I just want to confess something to you guys when I read this, it gets me so upset that Barabbas, this obvious murderer, by the crowd of the Jews that were supposed to know God and knew the law, they let a murderer go free, and they condemned to death this man. Barabbas was known for taking life. Jesus was known for giving life. He would heal on the Sabbath. He would uh, restore sight to the blind. He would heal a withered hand. He would raise up those who were captive. He came to free people who were in bondage. And it's interesting to me that I get so upset about a guy like Barabbas, who was a known murderer, being set free. But I don't get upset about me being freed by Jesus. Because the reality is, as we read this and we go, wow, some guy was set free, that was an obvious murderer, a sinner, and a perfect man was condemned to death. How tragic is that? And I say, yes, it is tragic, but that's you and I's story. If you are here tonight and you're in Christ, you were Barabbas. You were guilty of sin to the point of, according to God's law, you were to be put to death. And so... The interesting thing that I took away was that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors instead of Barabbas, yes, but instead of me. And uh, his name was on the list of condemned criminals, the top ten, if you will, the most wanted, in the headlines of those who had been executed instead of me. I get all upset about this, but, you know, if I would really think about the fact that it was me, not Barabbas' fault, it was me. So, I don't know. So the other question I ask is, let me ask you, do you know any guys or gals that are Barabbas's? Do you know any people that are guilty of sin and when they go to the court of law with the Lord, that they'll be condemned to death? Don't you know that Jesus died for them as well? Maybe they seem impossible. And some of them, it seems like they will never understand the truth and get saved. But the reality is, is that's who Jesus died for. And that's why we're here. Maybe we ought to ask the Lord to send some of those Barabbas's our way. I wonder how many people were praying for Barabbas in that day. I don't think there was probably many. I think there were probably a few, but I wonder how many people actually prayed for him. Um, I've got to confess, all too often I don't spend my time looking for those kind of guys to pray for. I'm thinking about the people that are this close. But the reality is, is whether you're close or not, you're, you're pretty far away if you don't have Jesus. So, uh, anyway, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the way that you do um, indeed allow yourself to be ridiculed and beaten and scourged. Um, And you did it. It's done. And you offer up the cup of salvation to all those who will partake of it. Lord, we spend so much of this life trying to fulfill our thirst with things that won't satisfy. And the reality is, unless we drink from the cup of salvation, nothing will ever satisfy So, Lord, thank you for providing that, not just by sending someone else to do it, but by being willing to do it yourself, to have your Son, the only begotten of the Father, to lay down his life so that we might have life and give him our filthy rags. Lord, may we realize how truly we've been blessed and loved, and maybe we'd be looking for the people that don't know that. Maybe they have their eyes closed and they are completely lost, but they don't even know it, Lord, help us to pray for them, help us to seek them out, help us to love them into the kingdom. We know that Romans 2, chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 4 says that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads man to repentance. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that down here in Arcadia Valley. We pray that you would do that specifically in our families. And Lord, I just pray that you would have your way with each one of our lives tonight, just basically because you deserve it. You purchased our lives with your own blood. So Lord, thank you for that. Make us more like your son. And Lord, may you get the praise the honor and the glory that you're due. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close with a song.